Welcome to another episode of The Impact of AI, sponsored by AI Time Journal. Each week, we explore how AI and cognitive technologies impact us daily, both professionally and personally. For those of you whom I've not met yet, my name's Melissa Drew. I will be your host for this week's podcast. This week is quite intriguing. We have with us today CEO of Spotted Risk. Now, Spotted Risk is a private equity-backed specialty analytics and underwriting firm. It was founded in 2016 by two former technology industry executives who built an expert team combined with data scientists, research analysts, and veteran insurance underwriters. For today, we have Janet Komenos, the co-founder and CEO of Spotted Risk. Now, Janet has appeared as a trusted source in more than 50 reputable publications and media outlets, including the New York Times, The Guardian, CNN, Adweek, CNBC, and Forbes. Janet, welcome. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Appreciate it. I am really intrigued by the combination of the specialty analytics and insurance. I mean, because as a normal individual, I buy insurance, but I think what you're doing with your company is completely on the innovative and, and the leading edge. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a, kind of a natural evolution for us to head into the insurance space because we started as an analytics, as a pure analytics company. And so the origins of our company are really rooted in data science and analytics. We started off by serving the entertainment industry. Um, and so many of the insurance products that we've ultimately developed have been focused around the entertainment industry, film and TV segment in particular. But we feel that um, you know our roots as an analytics company have really helped us differentiate ourselves in the insurance space because we take a very analytical approach to underwriting um, certain lines of insurance where underwriters historically uh, maybe would have used more kind of gut instinct than, than analytics. So it's, mm -hmm. it's really been a, an important differentiator for us. So you were one of the co-founders in 2016. Yes. Yep. My, my co-founder and I still run the business together. He's our chief product officer and I'm the CEO. So as a, a woman, you know, one of the things that we highlight on, on the podcast is highlighting the accomplishments of, of women specifically within the machine language, artificial intelligence, cognitive technologies, just women in, in technology. Can you give us a little bit more background on your journey to where you are today? Yes, definitely. So I am, um, you know, I'm definitely used to working in a male dominated space. I came from the technology industry and I spent about 10 years in executive roles at a couple different early and growth stage technology companies. At two of those companies, I ran global sales. And so, you know, I'm used to speaking a very technical language. And I think that's benefited me and benefited us in the insurance space. Um, because I can have meaningful conversations with underwriters and actuaries and talk to them about the technical part of our of our underwriting. No, so just a minute ago, you mentioned MGA, which I understand is the managing general agent. Mm -hmm. So I, I did look this up because I wasn't familiar with this term, but the managing general agent has the authority to underwrite the policies. I'd be interested to understand why is being the MGA important for your company versus what I understand are, are multiple other insurance agency type models. Yeah, we're slightly different than an MGA. We're an MGU. So we're okay. a managing general underwriter, really. MGA, the, the distinction between an MGA and an MGU is that an MGA tends to be more of a kind of distribution engine 
Mm -hmm. Whereas an MGU tends to actually develop the underwriting themselves and do the underwriting on behalf of the insurance carrier. And most of the products that we have developed and that we distribute, we built the product from the ground up and we actually designed the underwriting guidelines. And then the insurance markets, you know, the insurance, the insurers who support us um, really bought into our underwriting thesis and agreed to support us with capacity. So this type of model is very important to us because, you know, we've invested heavily in our data science and research functions that spotted. And we really want to be able to reap the benefit of those resources. By being an MGU, we retain control or at least a decent amount of control over the underwriting. And we're also compensated for underwriting the, these policies in addition to distributing them. So we gain access to a couple different revenue streams there. And being an MGU, we feel fully enables us to kind of capitalize or, or monetize our internal resources. I heard you mention in that response that you've developed mm-hmm. types of insurance. And I recognize that a lot of the insurance that you focus on is sometimes considered emerging risk insurance, which yes. in my understanding, it's been really difficult for others to really underwrite that in the past. So Mm -hmm. connecting that back to what you're doing with your analytics combined with data scientists and your knowledge of veteran underwriters, do you think that the reason why you're able to move into this emerging risk insurance is because you have the capabilities of pulling that data together, whereas before the data wasn't available? Yes. So, you know, we do tend to focus on developing products around emerging exposures and You know, because we are a smaller, nimble company, um, we can bring these products to market faster than incumbent insurers or insurance brokerages can. And, And a good example of that would be our COVID film and TV program. We started building that product in March of 2020 when there was basically no historical data to rely on for COVID. um, And we had to use proxy data to model the exposure and convince insurance markets to support us on that product. Uh, And so in that case, it was, you know, it was the very early days of COVID. Um, We had to develop a lot of sound assumptions that we used in our models and then get the insurer buy-in on those assumptions and the models themselves. And then another good example of this would be our disgrace insurance product, where we used prior information about celebrity scandals and the fallout that those celebrities experienced after they exhibited bad behavior to model out the exposure. And again, once again, convince insurers to support us on that program. So there, there is some degree of information available to us. You know, we're not completely pulling these products out of thin air, but mm-hmm. there, are, there are a lot of assumptions that we have to use in our modeling when modeling emerging exposures because the exposure is kind of developing right in front of you. So then where are you collecting your data from? Yeah, so for every product, the sources of information will vary. You know, a product like Disgrace, um, we have something like close to 200 reputable sources that we use. A lot of, you know, celebrity gossip sources that you might be familiar with. As a consumer of celebrity gossip, so Daily Mail and Us Weekly and People Magazine, obviously those sources are going to differ dramatically from the sources of information and and analytics that we use with our COVID product, which tend to be more communicable disease-based sources. So, So the IHME, Um, Oxford. Um, There are a number of universities that have published reputable information 
you know, the New York Times. Um, and so when we're, when we're developing any one of these new products around an emerging exposure, uh, one of the first things that we do is we identify a series of sources of information, and then we start to test that information to see how accurate it is. Um, and then ultimately, if that source passes our tests, we will then incorporate it into our models. Ultimately, you know, we can have the most talented data scientists in the world, but if we're not working with a clean set of underlying information from reputable sources, you know, the models won't matter at all. So it's really critical that we, in any one product, um, identify a, a set of sources that we can glean ongoing information from. I was just thinking of my background. So I'm a big background in procurement, analytics, supply chain, um, oftentimes working with some advertising agencies okay. that, that go out and collaborate with some of these celebrities. So I, yeah. I'm trying to get a little bit more understanding for myself and the audience. How do you take all of that data and turn it into something useful that you can use to make these decision-based yeah. insurance products? Yeah, so you have to start with a large set of information and then you have to develop, you know, simulations. You know, the disgrace example is probably the most interesting one. So we we started with just the um, just the name disgrace like prompts. I know. <laughs> I know, I know. We got we got a little bit of uh, press backlash on the name, I think. <laughs> it got uh, my attention, so I if it, yeah. it's doing its job, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and another funny thing, it's like for for a while there when we were launching that product, I would send emails to people I really wanted to get in touch with, and I would say because our company name is Spotted, so I'd say if I were to email you, Melissa, I'd, I'd write you an email that says Spotted dash. Melissa Drew dash disgrace. <laughs> and the response rate was like 98%. People would write back and say, oh my gosh, I thought I was in trouble. Wow. Good. I like that. <laughs> yeah. That's my sales background coming into play there. <laughs> Basically what we did with that product is that we had, uh, we had about 30,000 celebrities that were part of our universe of celebrities that we were analyzing and monitoring and we would collect a couple hundred data points on each celebrity. So we'd know everything about them. We'd know their, their family background, their educational history, any kind of issues, legal or behavioral issues. And so we had to start with you know, a large pool of information. And then we had to look at, okay, who are all the celebrities who've been in trouble and have been involved in a serious disgrace event? And then we had to look at which data points of all the data points we were collecting on all of the celebrities correlated to these instances of bad behavior. And so it's really critical that you start with a large pool of information and then we had to narrow it down. I think ultimately we saw that there were 34 or 35 kind of primary factors that tell us that an individual is not only likely to be involved in a disgraceful event, uh, but then if they do exhibit bad behavior, they're likely to be penalized by the public. Um, and then ultimately what, what we did was we created a proprietary index called the Public Outcry Index that uses U.S. census-based surveys to objectively determine whether that celebrity generated enough public outcry uh, for them to trigger a claim on the policy. You know, if we'd only started out with 30 or 40 data points on each celebrity, we wouldn't have been able to develop such robust underwriting guidelines. But because we started out with 
you know, tens of thousands of celebrities and in some cases, several hundred data points on each celebrity, we were able to then narrow that set of information to the, to the factors that really helped us predict which celebrities would get in trouble and would ultimately be kind of canceled by the public. So you've created a comprehensive, and I don't want to simplify what you've done, but a yeah. very comprehensive risk assessment on yes. an individual. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what we do with most products that we develop. So we create a, a spotted risk score. You know, so in the case of disgrace, we create a risk score, it goes from zero to 100. And we assign that risk score to every celebrity in the underwriting process. And that'll tell us if the celebrity is eligible or not. And it'll also dictate the rate. The same thing goes for our COVID film and TV program. So, uh, you know, because we're underwriting each individual production, whether it's a small indie production, you know, in Louisiana, or it's a major feature film being filmed in the UK, we have to look at a series of factors, you know, the, the size of the cast and crew, prior shutdown history in that location where they're filming, mm-hmm. um, you know, a number of factors. And then that enables us to assign a risk score to that production that will, again, tell us whether that production is A, eligible, and B, what the rate is. That's a common thing that we do when we're building these products. We'll assign our own proprietary risk score to the insured or to that risk. So one of the things in my experience with risk and not necessarily risk in this area, but you know, managing risk for projects, managing supplier risk, managing supply chain risk. If I look at some of the, the concepts I've learned over time, risk changes. And yeah. I would suspect that particularly with an individual, the risk is probably changing even more frequently. How often are these risk scores updated? So it depends a little bit on the product, but most of the time, you know, these are dynamic risk scores. So because we have such a technical team and, you know, my co-founder, he came from the tech world as well. um, And, you know, I'm, I'm commercial. He's very technical. So he's our chief product officer. He was the CEO of a very technical company prior to starting Spotted that he sold very successfully. Mm -hmm. So he's used to managing engineers and, you know, building out highly technical interfaces. And so what he's done is he takes all the models that we've developed and he and his team build automated underwriting dashboards where, you know, we take all the sources of information and then we build models where we assign different weights to the different, you know, inputs for each Mm -hmm. model. And then all of those models flow into an underwriting dashboard that our underwriters can access where generally we look to automate 80 to 90% of the underwriting on these products. So for our COVID film and TV product, because I think that's probably the most relevant one because, you know, unfortunately we still are in the midst of the pandemic 18 months later and Mm -hmm. our COVID film and TV product, there's still a lot of demand for it because, you know, primarily because of the Delta variant right now. But we collect a, a, a set of information on that production that, that our underwriters type into our underwriting dashboards. And then the models do their thing and boom, it spits out a rate, a suggested rate. And then our underwriters will look at some subjective factors, which can alter the rate slightly, but it's highly automated and it's variable and it can change quickly. So you know, one of the things that we saw earlier in the pandemic, you know, when infection rates were kind of mushrooming out of control and there was no vaccine in sight back in, you know, summer and fall of 2020, when we first launched our COVID film and TV program, is that, you know, the the rates and the eligibility could change basically on a dime. So mm-hmm. we would have situations where, you know, we would get a submission for COVID film and TV insurance from a production in a certain area 
and you know several weeks prior that area may have looked you know pretty good to us but because we covered that that product we cover you know sickness and death of the cast and crew but we also cover what's called civil authority shutdown so if a local government or public health official shuts down the filming location because of covid we would pay a claim and so it was really critical that we did not extend the coverage in areas where there was a high likelihood that the that the film was going to be shut down by a civil authority. Uh, and what we saw happen, so to the point that you made a moment ago about these risk scores being dynamic, we would have situations where, you know, a, a certain filming location looked very safe. And then several weeks later, you know, maybe some things had occurred in that location where, you know, the civil authority had moved to restrict um, mass gatherings, maybe they had shut down schools, they had shut down restaurants, and suddenly that location wasn't looking good to us anymore. And so we found ourselves in situations where it was incredibly important that our that our models were being populated on a on a real time basis because the location could go from being eligible to ineligible in a mere matter of weeks. You know, if we were only updating the models, let's say once every two weeks or once a month or once a quarter, we could have found ourselves in a very difficult position where, you know, the book could have blown up. Um, and instead the book has, because of the real time nature of our analytics and because of the rigorous nature of our underwriting and our eligibility criteria, that product has been a very, very profitable product for us and for our insurance market supporters. I have to say, I am more excited about insurance and risk than I think I've been my entire life. Like, <laughs> like you have been able to articulate and communicate this in such a way that makes this easy to understand. I, Thank you. Yeah. Like you. I'm, I can't believe I'm this excited about insurance. This is great. Well, well you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, we, we find uh, the MGA and MGU space to be fascinating. It's really entrepreneurial, but it's also very math oriented. So you kind of get the best of both worlds because it's creative. I mean, you know, as you can imagine, when we're sitting down as a team and we're developing these products, we have to have all sorts of conversations about, you know, the type of, you know, of data that, that we think would build the best models. And, you know, we have debates internally as to the weightings of the various inputs. And then it's, it's fascinating to see as the product unfolds and as we collect more information on that emerging risk, what that tells us about the predictors, you know, or the factors that could predict uh, whether a risk incident were to occur or not. So it's really, really fascinating. We're looking at a couple of very interesting spaces right now as well. So we're looking at the NFT space um, and the broader crypto space. We're looking at the cannabis space. Yeah. We're developing a product for SPAC directors and officers insurance. And these are all, you know, pretty emerging risks. And each product has its own kind of set of challenges that we have to tackle. I'd say the the one thing that, that is challenging for us, though, in focusing on these products where there is kind of less historical data than there would be for a more kind of cookie cutter vanilla insurance product is that it can be difficult to convince the insurers, you know, the insurance markets to support us because there is an education period where we have to educate the insurer on the exposure. It's one thing to have to convince an insurer to provide capacity for COVID film and TV, because generally the insurance companies we're talking to, they kind of get COVID, they mm -hmm. get film and TV world. When you're talking about something like an NFT, a non-fungible token, 
you not only have to uh, educate them on the validity of our insurance product, but we also just have to educate the insurance companies on NFTs in general, because they may not understand the concept. So there's a lot of education involved when we're pitching the capacity. Um, and I think that's one of the areas where my kind of prior background as an enterprise sales executive comes into play because it's really a sales exercise at the end of the day. That's incredible. It absolutely resonates. You know, you use the term emerging, anything that's in that emerging space, that's innovative, that's on the, the leading edge. There's always that combination of, I have to educate the, the consumer so that they understand why there's the value and why this is important and ultimately why they need it. For us, it's like, you know, it's a two-way negotiation because we have to educate the insurance companies who are providing us with the capacity. Mm -hmm. And then we often have to educate the buyer, you know, the insured, um, because when it's a new product, buyers, you know, insureds and their brokers are always concerned that, you know, maybe the product was designed in a way where, you know, it's not going to pay claims. And so you really have to walk the customer through all the benefits to the customer and all the ways in which the product will pay claims. Mm -hmm. And then interestingly enough, when we're pitching the capacity, you know, the insurers, we have to focus on all the protections that we've added to the product so that, you know, they won't be paying significant claims and they're one, and the book isn't going to blow up. So it's kind of a different sales exercise for the insurer as it is for the insured whenever we're developing and launching these products. You made a couple references in the last couple of responses around your team. I would like to really understand the back-end support, you know, because ultimately this is the backbone of your company and your product. What does your team look like? And, and what kind of infrastructure do you use to house all this data that you're collecting? It's interesting because the, the composition of, of our staff, of our team has changed pretty significantly. And I think most insure techs and analytically oriented MGAs and MGUs find themselves in this position where they enter into the insurance space and they have a highly technical team, but they don't necessarily have enough kind of insurance horsepower mm -hmm. on the team. So if I were to look back like 18 months ago, you know, we entered into the insurance space in late 2019. You know, it's been about two years for us in the insurance space since we started our, our MGU. And at that point in time, it was like, you know, the vast majority of our staff were technical people, data scientists, research analysts, product executives. So if we fast forward to today, about two thirds of our team are insurance folks um, and one third of our team are technical folks which I think is the right balance as an MGU. We still have several PhDs in data science and research analysts on our teams and product executives, but in any new product that we're standing up, we have insurance expertise to back up the product design and development. So we have specialty underwriters. We have a COO who's spent about 30 years in the specialty insurance space. Um, we have a chief underwriting officer who has a great track record working at Markel for the last 15 years. So we have, you know, serious insurance horsepower. And I think one of the areas where I see kind of insure techs or new MGAs or MGUs making a mistake is that, you know, they basically, they'll have one insurance person on their team and a bunch of really technical people. And that type of team composition doesn't exactly give an insurance company who you're pitching for capacity, the mm -hmm. confidence that you know what you're doing, especially from a distribution standpoint. So it's helpful to have kind of a balance between technical folks and insurance 
expertise. The only technical question I'm really going to ask is the type of infrastructure that you're housing your data in. For example, out in the market today, there's the discussion of a data warehouse, which has been evolving into a data lake. And then most recently, Snowflake just coined the term lake house, which I think is wonderful, the lake house, which is really a hybrid of using the best of both worlds between the data warehouse and the data lake. Can you give us some insights onto what you're doing to house all that data? We've gone about it a little bit of a different way. We've okay. built our own custom ah. infrastructure, yeah, <laughs> in-house. So we have our own homegrown system that we've built to house all of the information and the underwriting factors for any risk for any one product. We have engineers in-house and then we have an outsourced engineering team in India that helped us do the build out on that system. You know, and obviously we're backed up by AWS and the, the information that flows into our system comes from a variety of, of data sources, but we've built our own homegrown system, which was expensive, but uh, we wanted the control over this information because it's highly proprietary, you know, and when it comes to some of our products, we're collecting pretty personal information on individuals that we have yeah. to be very careful about. So we don't really want to be storing this anywhere else except for within our own in-house infrastructure. Thanks for, for highlighting that. I think it helps us recognize that sometimes the out-of-the-box data warehouse and data lake isn't going to support everyone's needs. So I, yeah. I think this was good. Yeah. And I, I think because of what we're doing is so bespoke, with each mm -hmm. product that it lends well to a kind of custom proprietary infrastructure. You know, if we were doing something that's a little bit more cookie cutter where we had a couple sources of data and, you know, it needed to flow into a, a system that our staff could see, like I could see us using one of the systems like you mentioned, but what we're doing is pretty complex and bespoke. I mean, we keep using the words emerging, innovative, you know, leading edge, disgraced insurance, things that haven't really been the focus or the ability to have the data to create that confidence in that insurance. Where you are, you know, I see you as a leader within this space. So I think this question is, is even more relevant for you is where do you see insurance and risk, you know, specifically, you know, where do you see the future of this as we now have the ability to apply AI and cognitive technologies to process that data. The interesting thing with us is that generally when you hear AI, you know, you're, you're talking about lines of insurance that are high volume, low premium, you know, where you're working with very big pools of data to optimize and to, you know, to better underwrite something like automotive insurance or life insurance or renter's insurance. What we're doing that's interesting is that we're applying AI um, and a very analytical approach to insurance lines of insurance where the volume might be lower and the premium can be very high. You know, on some of the products that we've developed, you know, the average premium um, may be, you know, four hundred to five hundred thousand dollars on a per policy basis, and we are not seeing um, outside of what we're up to at Spotted, we don't see a whole lot of you know analytics used in underwriting and validating risks that are bigger in nature. You know, AI is generally reserved for SME insurance, higher volume, lower price point insurance sold to small and medium-sized businesses. Um, and we're really trying to change that narrative and uh, incorporate analytics into 
bigger policies with higher premium that might be associated with a lower policy count. You had mentioned earlier some of the products that you were looking at. I'd like to go back to some of those because I think that was also another aspect of where you think not just you as a company, but where insurance and and analytics intersects is Mm going to be able to to provide that future level of confidence. So Mm -hmm. what were some of the other products that you have on the pipeline? And then just as a kind of a wishful list, where do you think some of those products should be coming from in in the future? You know, we're looking at any one time, we're looking at so many different opportunities. And the way that we kind of separate these opportunities internally is we have above the line opportunities that we are definitely pursuing. Mm-hmm. And then we have we have a lot more below the line opportunities that are really opportunities that are in exploratory phase where we're trying to understand, okay, uh, you know, is there a lack of capacity? Is the product mispriced? You know, are there distribution issues? You know, there are a series of questions that we need to answer in order for anyone, you know, potential product to go from below the line to above the line. Um, Because for us, you know, we're often investing six months of our time developing these products and we need to make sure that we're focused on the right opportunities that will generate, you know, meaningful income for us and for our capacity supporters. We've changed our mentality a little bit in the early days. You know, we were focused on pretty niche products. So, you know, products in the film and TV space, the film and TV space is not an enormous area. It's a pretty niche space. So we are starting to look at either spaces that are bigger right now, like cannabis, or spaces that should become big spaces like the NFT space, uh, and then applying data science to those areas. The way that these opportunities kind of surface for us is that we have a small team of people who are spending a lot of time reading not only the insurance trades, but the tech trades, and then cross-referencing what they're reading um, in a publication like TechCrunch with what they're reading in a publication like Insurance Journal to see, okay, are there emerging technologies or emerging trends that are creating issues for insureds where um, either they're, the insured is underinsured or claims are just starting to arise? And if so, let's start to investigate those areas now. So we do, we service a lot of these opportunities ourselves. We also just get a lot of emails and phone calls from people in the insurance industry and outside of the insurance industry who now know of us as a firm that has a track record of building successful insurance products around emerging risks. Um, and so we're pretty consistently getting emails and, and phone calls saying, hey, have you thought of this? Have you thought of this? You know, have you thought about building a DNO product for the crypto space? You know, I have a portfolio, I'm an investor and I have a portfolio. I have several portfolio companies that have really struggled to secure that insurance. You know, have you guys thought about that? So we have a, a long list of opportunities that we're looking at that we've surfaced and that others have surfaced for us. Well, Janet, I'm going to wrap up our conversation today and I'm going to ask you this one last question. I would love to hear from you what your prediction is going to be for any one to three years now in the future, off the top of your head, what type of risk insurance do you think is going to be the mainstream in one to three years from now? So I think the one trend that's really interesting to me right now is the embedded insurance 
trend. And I think, for example, Amazon's partnership with Marsh provide insurance to Amazon sellers, you know, product liability, commercial liability insurance is a really interesting, you know, and that news just came out about a week ago. You know, I think we're going to start to see more of the, more and more of the retail brokers start to embrace embedded insurance, because I think if they don't, embedded insurance opportunities are going to be very, very disruptive to the retail and wholesale brokerage uh, landscape. So mm -hmm. I think we're going to be seeing uh, the retail brokers embrace more embedded insurance opportunities in the future and, and really start to serve insurance opportunities to the customer at the time of sale that makes more sense to the customer and is more customized to the customer. So that's my kind of number one insurance prediction. We look forward to hearing about spotted risk in the news because I, I know just listening to the conversation that we've had today, we're going to see more and more of you and we're going to see more and more of your company. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It was fun talking with you, Melissa. So thank, thank you so you much for your time today. Yeah, you too. Have a good one. <laughs>